Right. Hey, Welcome back to another edition of Dadbot Bible, real men talk, right? Like to talk to guys who I respect or guys that I know that I think I've got something to say and it's worth listening to. So today I've got a guy that I found I discovered in 2015 at the Strength Matters Summit, Andrew Reid. He basically changed my outlook on how we should train, especially the aging adults. Andrew, do you want to give a wee quick rundown of who you are and why people should listen to you? Because <laughs> I'm the smartest guy in the world. No, um, <laughs> let's see. I'm 49, so definitely in the age group that you deal with. And uh, when I was 39, I was doing a lot of writing and presenting and whatever, and realised there was no information for guys like I wanted to be. I, I didn't want to be a broken down 50 year old. I wanted to be a fit, healthy 50 year old. And I, I started looking into it more and more and trying to find some research. And there was very little about, I remember there was, there was one book that I had to review for a website. And I thought, you know, like, how can there be millions of, of bits of information for 30 year olds and 20 year olds? And there's this, there's one book for 50 year olds. Like, how is that possible? So I started doing it more and more. So I've now got 10 years of, of investment in, in guys in our age group. Um, my history is a PT, so I've done everything from I've trained world champion powerlifters and even my 79-year-old mother is a world champion powerlifter, so she's won two world titles, holds four world records, holds four world records in the deadlift. Um, yeah, I mean, look, let's be honest, there's not too many nearly 80-year-old women wanting to go to powerlifting competitions and we're always the smallest people in the competition. She's only 50 kilo. She's not very big at all. But so I've done everything from that. So proving that what I'm talking about actually works. And my mum has, I mean, we hiked in Tasmania, which is the kind of the hilliest part of Australia in January. So that's only a month ago. And we covered like 65 kilometres over five days, including ascending up. And, and Australian mountains aren't very big, but two 1,600 metre mountains, which is quite good for someone in her age group. There was, I guarantee there was no one else who was nearly 80 years old on top of mountains that day. Um, so it works, you know, like, like all the way through the, the age categories. And, um, I've also done, I mean, athletic preparation for a bunch of stuff, but as I've gotten older, it's mostly about working with people. And my goal when I hit 40 was that I wanted to be at 50, like I was at 40 and I'll be at 60, like I was at 50 and so on. Obviously the, um, the, the performance will decline. But if you can get there in roughly the same shape, I mean, that's pretty good. And so now I'm, I mean, I turned 50 this year and I, I can say I'm pretty close to where I was at 40. Um, the middle will be tough because kind of 42 to 45, I really pushed it quite hard. Uh, and so I've got now a bunch of guys who've also done, I've got ultra runners in their 40s. I've got guys who've done the seal fit thing as well as me in their 40s. Um, you know, the, the level of performance able to get out of guys is amazing once we actually get everything sorted out. And that's usually the hard part is, is getting all the lifestyle stuff sorted out first. That's actually a good question, good way to start on. What's your secret sauce to getting guys who have been, especially in Australia, they like their beer like the Irish, you know, <laughs> the obesity levels in Australia is actually pretty high, isn't it? It's coming down, but it's a pretty high when I lived in Australia, it was like two parallels. It was like the really fit and the really fat. So you've got this sort of like similar lifestyle to Ireland. How do you get them to let go of the old and embrace the new? That is very difficult. I mean, and, and I, it's a constant fight, to be honest. I mean, I have, I have a guy right now who is, um, 
I can't really talk about what he does for a job, so you can figure out kind of what he does for a job. Um, but he's now mid-40s. His time in that specific job is coming to an end. He's now like heading more in towards a training kind of mentoring sort of role, but still has to have some of the physical ability and the like the, that durability that's required. Um, he's very much of the mindset that, you know, I'm just a fucking robot and uh, I'm just going to bash doors down still and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just rah, you know, and but it's not working for him. And, you know, we have a number of, of conversations that go like this and normally what happens is later on he'll say to me, oh, you know, I was pretty pissed off when you said whatever it happened to be, but then I thought about it and let it sink in and, you know, you were right. Um I, I got called. Well, it's it's hard, you know, because and, and I, I don't want to go slow either. I mean, because in our heads, and this is the, the shit part about getting older, you don't remember how hard it was to be in peak shape. You just remember being in peak shape. You remember what you could do. And it doesn't matter whether that was at 20, you arrive at, I mean, 50, let's say, and you still remember that. And in your head, you're still that guy. And physically, you're probably not. And so I, I got called today by a client, a new client. I got called her unreasonable friend, like the friend that will call you on your bullshit, the friend that won't put up with any garbage. Mm. Right here. And so a large part of it is me saying to people like, and I have a client who is, uh, and she's actually Irish. Um, she is mid fifties and you know, like it has been, and, and there's some, some medical stuff, but has been struggling just from recovery point of view over like 30 minute runs, right? And and like our regular training program. And she sent me a message the other day saying, well, I think I'll do a half marathon. I was like, but you know, does, does that really seem like, like, like your body is telling you no on what amounts to a five or six K run and you want to do four times that amount. Does that really seem like a good goal? Or maybe you just rather run a good 5K. Doesn't that seem like a better goal? And you know, like, so trying to, you know, you're always on that balance between, hey, I've got to call you on your bullshit and point out that this is a really dumb idea. But at the same time, I need to be tactful about it and try to get you to buy into something that's actually going to be really good. And again, the problem is that we just remember what we could do. So that is probably, I probably spend more time holding people back in training than I do pushing them. I mean, because my attitude is, you know, when you train people, they turn up at 6 a.m. and they go, oh, I don't really want to be here. Well, that's bullshit. You got up at 5 a.m. to be in my gym at 6 a.m. You don't have a motivation problem. Like you are motivated. Yeah. You know, you might be doing that self-deprecating thing that's really common in English and Aussie culture where, you know, like you 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 put yourself down. That's that's part of the way we like because it's not it's very different for Americans. Americans are all about grandstanding and, and yeah. Like, but our culture is very much about if someone gives you a compliment, you say, oh, I just had a good day today. You don't say, yeah, thanks very much, man. You know, I worked super hard for that performance today. I've kicked my own ass for the last six months to run that pace or whatever it happens to be. We always go, oh, I just had a good day. Thanks very much, you know. And so it's a very hard part of our culture to get people to buy into that actually, you know, as we, as we get older, we do need to, to be smart about some of this. And so in Tasmania, as an example, with my mum, we were hiking up Cradle Mountain. Cradle Mountain is, it, it's not actually a walk. The, the top part, maybe the last 400 metres of vertical ascent, 
is what you call scrambling. So it's it's kind of just a little bit down from actual needing some climbing stuff. So it's big boulders that you're going over with your hands and it's all going like this. And we got to a point, we were 200 metres from the top, not in distance, but in, in height. And um, and I just said to my, and it's there's no safety rope, there's no harnesses, there's no high-vis vests or anything. There's just, you know, and if you make a mistake, either going up or going down, you're going off the edge of a cliff. And looking up, I said to my mum, like, we're still probably an hour from the top. There's a cutoff to get out of the park that we were already dangerously close to missing out on. And if you if you miss the it's a, it's a last shuttle out right because you're not allowed yep, cars yep. or anything is because it, it's national heritage. Um, if you miss it, it's another ten kilometer walk out, and so like we would then end up walking for like twenty hours for the day, which at eighty years old that started like you see that that's unreasonable, right? Yeah. And yeah. I'm looking at my watch. I'm looking at the distance, and I'm looking at just how exposed <laughs> it is and the danger, and not just coming up because you once you get up, you've still got to come down. And it's, it's pretty steep and there's nothing to hold on to. And all I can think is my mum's going to be exhausted. She's going to face plant and go off the edge of a cliff, right, which that's not a good way to, to finish a trip with your mum. And I said, hey, I need to call this. You, you need to act your age. This is We need to, to pull the pin here because this isn't going to work. And we talked about it for about 15 minutes and she agreed with me. And, uh, you know, so and that's hard because I had to, I had to my own mum, I had to tell her that, hey, this thing you really want to do, is not a smart idea and and that's a tough conversation for anyone to have that's really tough to have those every day with clients but that's the reality it's, it's, of being a coach it boils down to the risk reward continuum you know is there this worth the reward and i think with like i always go back to instagram or facebook this this culture we've got of pushing hard with one last rep and all this stuff it sort of makes people believe that's what fitness is it's about testing your abilities to absolute limits Oh, you, you cut out there, man. Uh, and David Goggins, I mean, have, have a look at that culture that surrounds him with like, rah, just do it, you know, you don't know me, you know, get hard, rah. Like that challenge he's got, what is it? It's four miles every four hours for 48 hours or something. Ridiculous. And then there were guys in their 40s and 50s wanting to do this. I saw a post in a, like in a running yesterday, a guy saying, I've got a tear in my calf, but this weekend I'm doing this challenge. I was like, you're not even. You can't even walk without pain, and now you want to run four miles every. Like, are you serious? You want to do a marathon a day for the next two days, and you can't even walk without pain now. Like, that's fucking dumb, man. I read the David Goggins book, and see, to be honest, he actually inspired me. Like, I found him very inspiring, but at the same time, I like reading the burden because I know I'm never going to do that. You know, I like to read other people doing this shit. I thought it was so bad. I actually got rid of it after halfway through it. Did you? I enjoyed it. I actually, I just like I like to hear his struggle. I understand. Like, I just like to hear about guys who can push themselves further than the average person because it makes you realise that your bitching is just bitching sometimes. Sure. But I've no, I've no desire ever to do what he does, and I would never encourage anyone to do it. No. But there are people with that mindset that can just push the human boundaries further than anyone else. No, but, that comes at a price, right? Like two divorces, right? And a guy who is, you know, universally disliked by all the guys he served with in all the, the different military groups he was with. So, you know, right? he's, a, he's a great, amazing in terms of what he's done and accomplished. His mindset is, I mean, his mind is like steel, but 
it comes at a cost. And this is the thing when, you know, like, and I have guys all the time going, yeah, you've got to be like Goggins. Whoa. You do not <laughs> want to be like Goggins because you've got a wife and kids. You've got a business partner who depends on you and all these things. And this is a guy who's so hard to put up with. Everyone close to him dislikes him. That's not yeah. who you want to be. You know, that, and that's, it comes at a cost. Again, you're already seeing one side of the story. You're not hearing from the fan. I, I know friend. SEALs who know him and they do not like him. Right. There's some, there's some, you know, every day. They don't know what He says it in his book. I mean, he says he was not well liked in the SEALs. So, I mean, he, he's upfront about it, but it, it, and he's not exaggerating. That's correct. I thought he was just saying, you know, because he was driving people on. I didn't think he was just, we just don't like you. You know, you're an asshole. Yeah, just but I mean, because he's, he's to, one him. to be yeah. that you have to be self centered. And that's the, 100%. The ethos in the military is all about teamwork. It's not about self. So, you know, if, if you're just worried about me, me, me and my stuff all the time, you are absolutely going to turn off everybody around you. Well, what I was going to say was, like as I said at the very start, in 2015, I'd never actually heard of you before. And then I listened to your talk and you literally changed my ethos on coaching and training. Until then, we had a good, we actually had a talk out there and I was talking about, you know, I was, cardio was, Ending over five reps, I was a strong first, that all that sort of rah, you know, comrade type shit. But the way you presented the um, talk on the heart and the, the changes in the size of the heart and the, the wall thickness, it really started thinking, making me think about, which is, a, I suppose, the idea those strength summits are to actually challenge your thought patterns and listen to other people's opinions. So it done really well. And I went out and bought your book straight away, Run Strong. Um, I would just like, to, if you're possible, you could just maybe dive in a bit to explain to you guys why cardio, steady state cardio, is actually crucial for part of your training. Because we know hit training and Instagram tells you it's all about high intensity and short interval bursts rather than long duration. Yeah, so, I mean, firstly, if you look at, and, and it doesn't matter whether it's cardio or strength in my mind, we have one CNS and it responds the same way to training, right? And so we all know with strength training, the average intensity over a year should be about 70%. It doesn't mean you're only going to lift at 70%. You're going to have efforts that are higher, efforts that are lower, but average intensity over a year, about 70%. So if we apply the same mindset to cardio, my average intensity should be about 70%, right? And if you look at uh, the guy who's done the most research on it, his name is Sealer or Sailor. I don't know how to pronounce it, S-E-I-L-O-R. Um, you can find videos of him on YouTube giving whole lectures and everything. He's got books. Uh, the easiest place to find out about it is a book called 80-20 Running by a guy called Matt Fitzgerald. Um, and I've even used bits that he's used in his book within my book is in like, like used references and stuff like that. Um, but what it says is that 80% of your training volume should be lower, like below 70% intensity stuff. And then you have 20% that would be higher intensity, hard intervals, race pace efforts, whatever that happens to be. If you're a fighter, that will be actual fighting. And, you know, because, and again, this is something interesting that people don't think about, you know, like amateur fighters think they need to fight all the time. You look at a pro, a pro fights once every few months, maybe twice a year, a really good one. They mm -hmm. spar, which is another lower layer of intensity down, but they practice a lot, which is much lower intensity. So they're still hitting each other, but, you know, the relative intensity is way, way down. And sparring is a collaborative thing, right? Like we're both, because like, it's not a fight. I'm not trying to dominate you. We've both got stuff to work on. The intensity is much, much lower than fighting. 
you're not fighting at 100% every single time you train. Like, a fighter wouldn't last, particularly, you know, like with small MMA gloves. Can you imagine actually that? Like, go to training, fight five days a week, see how long you last. I did. I did. Yeah. I was, that's why I'm battered. I was, <laughs> one the, I was one of the pioneers of MMA in this country. And back in the end days, it was like, train hard, fight harder. Yeah, but we know now it doesn't work, right? Because you <laughs> just end up broken. And, and cardio is the same. So, you know, we need roughly 70% intensity. We need four out of five sessions to be low intensity, right? So that's the, like the basic parameters. I like the Maffetone heart rate numbers because it's simple. People don't, you, you know, like a lot Can of the... Yeah, yeah. The, the, a lot of the, the heart rate zone stuff you see, you know, people end up with like, oh, you know, it's zone 3A or it's zone 5B for 12 seconds. It's just way too hard, right? So I have, I have two numbers that I use. One is MAF or below MAF. So MAF is maximum aerobic fitness, right? And the formula is 180 minus age. I'm 49. That makes my number 131 right now, okay? If you're 40 years old, it's 140. It's really simple. People can remember it. So we have training that is like – in that area. So I would say within 10 beats of that, right? And so I would allow people like five beats below, five beats above, and I expect them to see an average heart rate of whatever their math number is for the entire session. That's four out of five sessions. And then we have simply hard, right? So I've got math and I've got hard and that's it. So hard is I need you for whatever the period is to go so hard you think you're going to die, right? And nothing in between. I don't want a moderate effort. I don't want... 80%, I've got this easy number and then I've got right at the top. And that's obviously, you know, if we're talking about how I need you to go for 30 seconds, that's a much harder effort than yeah. three minutes, for instance, just in terms of output. But in the last minute, for instance, of a three-minute interval, I expect your heart rate's going to be the same. So, you know, and people say, oh, what should my heart rate be? And I'll look at, you know, a 40-year-old guy, I'm going to expect to see high 170s, maybe even into the 180s, what your last heart rate should be in that final minute of that three-minute interval. So very, very little of that, much more of the math stuff. And the reason is, so, you know, like one, I think we all agree having a healthy heart is probably a good thing, right? Like we're all getting to an age where we say, yeah, it's good. You're like, look how good my arms are or whatever it happens to be. Or, you know, like I'm not carrying a spare tire. I don't have to do my belt up under my gut. Like that's great stuff. But not having a heart attack is a really good thing. And so I started thinking about it. Like when you look at the number one cause of death for guys past 40, it's heart attack. It's not having a small bench press or, or a weak deadlift. It's a heart attack, right? So what can I do? that's going to benefit people as much as possible, and that's not have a heart attack. It means we need some cardiovascular training. Now, while the HIIT stuff has certainly been shown to increase aerobic fitness, VO2 max and stuff like that, I think we all recognize that having a heart beat hard for 15 seconds, say, versus having a heart beat steady for 30 minutes, perhaps, those aren't the same things. You might get the same fitness increase, but you're certainly not getting the same heart workout you know it's like saying like i can go to the gym and i can lift five reps and my muscles are going to get the same workout as if i do 50 reps it's it's not and we all know that one round of sparring versus 20 rounds of sparring like you see like like the volume is important volume is always the biggest driver of change so having a healthy heart started driving everything behind what i was thinking about with clients and again so as i've done performance stuff but mostly it's 40 year old people looking to be healthier fitter and not just for right now for maybe a half marathon, but for the rest of their life. Then you start looking at what the important things you get out of heart health are. So 
just straight away from an aesthetics point of view, helps you use fat better as a fuel. Let's face it, most people are overweight. You're talking about the difference between like Australia and Ireland and our fit versus fat. We have the same statistic as everybody else. We got like 70% of the population overweight or obese, right? Most people need to lose some weight. They need to learn to metabolize fat better and aerobic training helps you do that. And particularly that lower heart rate aerobic stuff. The higher heart rate stuff, not so much. And even the fueling that you use during that is more uh, carbohydrate based than fat based, right? Because the intensity is so high that fat burning is almost inconsequential at that point. So use fat better. My, um, I, I build more mitochondria. So those are the things that actually allow me to create more energy. That's pretty important. I actually change the structure of the heart. I make it actually into a bigger, better pump. So when we work out muscles, we want to build bigger, stronger muscles. I can actually make a bigger, stronger heart just by training it in this. And the range is really 120 to 150. It's called cardiac output training. Basic recommendations are three by 30 to 90 minute sessions per week. And again, that math number fits right in there for most people. Again, you're 40 years old, your number's 140. You do 30 to 90 minutes three times a week. You're going to end up with a bigger, stronger, better heart. You're going to metabolize fat better. You're going to decrease your risk of heart attack. And there's a whole bunch of like all these other things. And the final thing is that it actually helps you recover. So if I'm a fighter, right, and let's say I'm MMA, I'm, I'm a pro fighter, I'm fighting for a title, I've got five five-minute rounds, right? There we go, five five-minute rounds with, is it a 30-second or a 60-second break between rounds? 60 seconds. 60 seconds. So my total fight time is 29 minutes, right? I've got five rounds with four one-minute breaks between them. I've got a 29-minute fight. I need to be able to sustain a high heart rate for 29 minutes, but really high for five and then recover for one. That thing that helps you recover in the one minute is your aerobic system. It's not how much power you can put out on an airdyne for 60 seconds. It's how powerful your aerobic system is, not just between efforts, whether that's between rounds or between sets, but also between workouts. So we might be talking, I worked out on Monday and I need to recover for Tuesday. The thing that helps you recover is your aerobic system. So if you actually want to put more work into your week, as in you want to work out more, the smartest way to do it is with aerobic work. And there's actually, I can show you mathematically how it works. So if you, um, if you attribute, let's say, a number from one to 10 for intensity, right? And then multiply it by the, the length of the workout. So let's say a 60, a 60 minute workout times a seven out of 10 for average intensity, right? So a 420 point workout. I do three of those a week, 1260 points, okay? Now, okay. if I wanna train more, there's actually a number that allows you to progress without overtraining. And then there's a number where all of a sudden too much becomes overtraining. So 120 to 150% of your 1260 points per week gives you progress without overtraining, beyond 150% overtraining. So the AIS here, which is our sports institute where all our Olympians come from, did a study on this showing that this is not a matter of, for the overtraining part, it's not a matter of if, but when. So once you step over that 150%, you are going to get hurt or you are going to get sick. There's no questions about it. So if I then go, I'm at 1260 points, Add another 420 point workout to my week. I go to 1680 all of a sudden. I've gone up 30%. I am just within that window. You see, if I accidentally make that a little bit harder, I'm feeling good. So I push up to an eight out of 10 all of a sudden for that workout. I've gone too far. Boom, sick or injured almost instantly, right? So if you're at three workouts a week and you want to go to four, it becomes very difficult to add in that fourth workout. But what if? 
And let's use walking as an example, right? Because I was right at the other end. So this shows how important this lower intensity stuff is. We'll give it a, a value of not one, but let's say two for walking, right? Because like it, it's one would be, I don't know, like sitting on the couch, right? But so walking is pretty close, yeah? So we'll call it a two out of 10, 60 minutes at a time. It's 120 points per walk, right? If I did that seven days a week, 700, it's 840 points just for walking for the week. Do you see now I don't have 1,260 points? I've got like 2,100 roughly, yeah. yeah? But by adding in that low-intensity stuff that has no recovery costs associated with it at all, I've instantly given myself a much bigger buffer to put that fourth workout in and not go beyond that 150%, right? And then as you yeah. get better and better and fitter and fitter, you know, now you're talking about I can add in runs that are like five or six out of 10 for an hour at a time. I get 300 extra points for three of those a week. I get 900 extra points. So now with my walking plus my three hour long cardio sessions, for instance, boom, I'm up to 3000 points. Now I can really start adding in a lot of hard workouts. So I'm using this lighter workout to buffer all of the harder stuff. And like for me, you know, when, when I see numbers, it all just makes sense, right? There's no, there's no bullshitting. There's no subjectivity. It's this is the number. Below this, we get this result. Above this, we get this result. My numbers need to be in here. The only way to actually increase that for most like regular people is actually with lower intensity stuff. If you just keep trying to shove in hard workouts on top of each other, boom, sick, injured, burnt out straight away. And I'm sure we, we all know someone who's been in that boat, right? Like they start training, they go as hard as possible to offset all the damage they've done prior. And then what happens? Four weeks, six weeks later, boom, they got to stop. They're on the couch again for another two or three months until they regain enthusiasm or their injury heals. Then they do it all again, four to six weeks later, boom, burnt out, stop. And this continual cycle of stop starting is obviously problematic to them because we all know what we really want is just to be consistent and habitual, right? Yeah, so what do you say, Ben? The, again, I always go back to them because they're nightmares. The Insta, Insta trainers who talk about, you know, if you want to do cardio, lift weights faster. What are the different impacts on lifting weights for longevity as opposed to actually just walking on the heart? What's the difference in the, the effects of the heart? Um, so the heart, I mean, for people who, who aren't fitness professionals, you know, there are a couple of different kinds of muscle contraction really that we talk about. We talk about concentric and eccentric. The short version is concentric is lifting stuff. Eccentric is lowering stuff. So concentric means the muscle shortens while it's contracting. But you can also have the muscle contracting while lengthening, which is what happens when you lower the weight, right? The muscle's clearly tense while you're still lowering it in a bicep curl, for instance. You can get concentric and eccentric adaptations of the heart as well. So adaptations to the heart from lifting weights that are actually thicken it, make it like, like tougher. That sounds like a good thing, like, like that you're increasing the density of the heart. But you know, if you imagine the main chamber of the heart, right? So it's like this, it's, it's, it's the, um, the left ventricle, but it can thicken like this, right? It doesn't thicken by, by the internal diameter staying the same and then thickening on the outside. It actually thickens potentially internally. So now what you've got is you've got a thick heart with an internal diameter of like this. So you might look like a Mack truck, but you've got a Prius engine. And I talk about this quite a lot. When you do cardio stuff, you actually make that bigger, right? So the left ventral increases in size. So, you know, this is another reason why we want to do cardio is I want to make a bigger, stronger pump. So the weights actually helps, but the cardiovascular stuff, and again, to do that 
what you need to do, just like building a muscle, you need to put that muscle under stress long enough and consistently enough that it realizes what the stressor is and then it has to adapt to it and it adapts by getting bigger and stronger. With my heart, I need to make it beat within that 120 to 150 range or the math number because it's right in the middle there often enough and long enough that it's forced to stretch out and actually recognize that the most efficient thing it can do is grow and get bigger, okay? So when you lift weights faster, your heart rate might go up, but your heart's not getting any bigger. And you can see, so at all heart rates, so right from what would be resting heart rate right up to your max, the oxygen uptakes, that's the amount of, of when you think about what your heart's actually doing, right? So it's supplying blood, which is really supplying oxygen to the working muscles, right? So the oxygen uptake to the working muscles is lower and it's lower by about 30% at all heart rates, all intensities, when you're doing the lift weights faster thing versus a traditional cardio thing. Because what happens is the when the muscle tenses a lot, so beyond 50%, which is not very difficult to achieve, the oxygen, uh, the blood is actually occluded. It's stopped going into the muscle. The muscles become too tight for blood to actually flow into it. What you need is like a low load cycling thing, running, swimming, cycling, kayaking, like all the traditional cardiovascular stuff. You need this to actually allow the oxygen to keep flowing through the muscle. So lift weights faster. I mean, if you're a CrossFitter, I'd call that like specific preparation for competition, for instance. Like, that, but that's not actually how you get fit. That's what you're competing in. So, and you know, like any sport, I mean, we just said you don't fight five days a week. If you're a soccer player, you don't play games five days a week. If you're a basketball player, you don't play games five days a week. You practice at much lower intensities and you practice the specific skills and then you take it all and you put it into a match setting. So if I was a CrossFitter, I'd be doing wads basically just to keep the taste of it and I'd be building my maximal strength and my aerobic fitness you know, like at the same time on the idea that that's the thing that's going to make my, my fitness uh, competition much better. But the, for most people, when you look at what they should be spending their time on. There's low intensity and there's really high intensity. The weights takes care of a lot of the high intensity anaerobic stuff, you know, and, and takes care of the strength training, takes care of muscular strength, takes care of all the, the benefits that happen there. Low slash moderate intensity cardio does like all the heart stuff and helps you keep fat off and all that stuff. This kind of middle range here, I mean, that's where most people work out. That's useless. It doesn't do anything. It just makes you tired and sweaty. So, you know, most people would be better off spending more time at lower intensity and more time, you know, when you're lifting weights, lift weights hard, but avoid these kind of, I don't know, like the burnout circuity kind of stuff. It, if you're doing something where you require muscular endurance, great. If you're not, just leave it alone. Maximal strength and aerobic training are going to give you really long lasting gains as well. So if you had to stop training tomorrow for whatever reason, that stuff is going to stick for the longest period of time. That anaerobic stuff, like the lift weights fasting, disappears very quickly as well. Within two to four weeks, it's all gone if you don't keep doing it. So, you know, if I'm training for longevity, I want stuff that if I break a hip or whatever, I'm going to keep for as long as possible while I'm doing rehab. I don't want my fitness to disappear overnight while I'm doing rehab. That's going to be a terrible way to get through rehab. Tell me this. You're approached by, by whoever it is. I have a hypothetical here, and you're going. To, you're being tasked to rewrite the the way people train around the world. What is your blueprint? How do I do it? Because you just cut out at the end there. I got most of the yes, questions. I said, what's, your, what's your blueprint? What's your blueprint um, for if you were to get tasked with getting the, but setting that blueprint for how people are going to train from now on? 
What way does that look? It's, it's pretty simple, right? So I, I like balanced programs. So, and I'm not, you know, like I'm a big fan of endurance stuff, but I don't think cardio is the answer to everything. So my programs are generally three days of strength and three days of endurance stuff, right? And six days a week, you get one day off. As we approach 50, it starts to become two days off. And then it's kind of like an AB split. So one week they'll do three strength and the next week they'll do three cardio, right? Yeah. So it's still balanced, okay? Um, cardio is cardio. That's pretty simple. It's all math stuff primarily, right? And, and somewhere in that 30 to 60 minute range, I find when you go beyond 60 minutes for guys in our age group, the muscle soreness and stiffness that comes with it not necessarily making you better, certainly from a fitness perspective, but actually for the rest of your life, it's making it tougher to get down on the ground, play with your kids, making it tougher to, to do some gardening or mow the lawn or whatever later in the day. So those really long sessions have a very negative payoff. So in that kind of 30 to 45 minute is, is the sweet spot for the cardio stuff. The strength stuff, uh, straight sets, maybe uh, non-competing supersets. So it might be like chest and back. Uh, it might be... Uh, upper body and lower body, but primarily straight sets, you know, typical stuff that we grew up with in that six to eight rep range is where you'll find the best gains for both size and strength for a natural trainee. So, you know, this, this kind of thing that's come about over the last, well, maybe decade where everyone's been encouraged to do five reps or less. I mean, that works really well if you're a very talented strength athlete. For those of us who are more normal, like aren't built like the mountain, for instance, that's not going to be a useful way for most of us to train. And if we're being honest, most people, along with not having a heart attack, really just want to look better, right? Like that's a real driver for training. And I probably yeah. turned my nose up at that 10 years ago, but now I recognize that aesthetics, vanity, pride, self-esteem, those are all really important things. And... You know, that six to eight rep range is really important to get both muscular growth and change the way you look as well as actually be as strong as possible. So that's kind of where I train people. Three to four sets, four to five exercises, three days a week. That's pretty simple. But because the other thing that goes with strength is, is potentially the loss of range of motion, we all know guys who are really strong or really fit can't touch their toes, right? At some point, like, and I had this realization because like you, I've had a lot of injuries um, particularly on the, my right leg is fucked. Like my ankle was wrecked in the army, my knee in a motorbike crash, and my hamstring was torn off the bone all on one side. My left hip, I've got a torn labrum, probably looking at a hip replacement like you in a few years' time. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but I realized, hey, if, if I ever became single at like 60, if I don't fix something now, I'm going to need to hire someone just to help me put my shoes on. Like there's a very real chance I won't be able to get my shoes on, right? I'm not joking. I'm actually at that point right now. I need to, I need to get my partner to put my shoes on me now. Yeah, well, barring injury, nice. right? So under normal circumstances, that shouldn't happen. So the rest periods in the strength training need to be flexibility work, right? And so a lot of people, I mean, ideally there'd be separate sessions, right? But we're all pushed for time. We're trying to maximize like that hour where we're training, when you run, you're just running or riding or whatever it happens to be. So there's no time to do flexibility in there. But when you're doing strength training, there's one or two minutes between sets where you're not doing anything. You can get on the ground and do some hamstring flexibility work. You can do some hip flexor stretching. You can do some shoulder stretching. You, you can actually address all this stuff that's going to hold you back later. So I guess my template is three plus three. It's six days a week, roughly one day off, even mix of cardio and strength. The cardio is all moderate 
intensity stuff. I do not. I wouldn't put any high intensity stuff in there. Um, the strength is all relatively straight sets, three or four sets of six to eight reps for most exercises, uh, and in between would be corrective slash flexibility stuff. And you know, it, it, oh, and walking every day. So people will think like there's not a lot possible with that. But let's be honest, as trainers, if you had a customer that was doing three days of cardio a week, came to the gym and trained hard three days a week, walked every day, and they're probably getting eight hours of sleep and watching their diet, that's a rock star client, man. Like over a year or yeah, two years, yeah. that person is going to look amazing, you know, and that's that's where the strength really comes out. It's like compound interest in a bank account. It's not about, you know, what did you do today or this week even. It's about what have you done over the last year, the last two years, and if it's sustainable, this is the real magic that in two years, three years, ten years, you're going to look pretty amazing. Thanks. I think that's the problematic generating know that's got it's worth their salt. It's consistency. It's 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 yeah. having playing the long game as opposed to like thinking like the hit training sessions of that you're going to do for twelve weeks. It's about three years. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Here's five mean, I, years of. Consistency. I can tell you now, so I'm doing an experiment at the moment with training twice a day. I haven't trained twice a day for uh, like four years or something. And the only reason I was then was because I went to that seal fit thing when I first met you. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it, it's hard work. But the, And the only way I can sustain it is actually keeping the intensity relatively low. I'm not lifting close to failure. I'm doing a relatively small amount of sets and exercises every time I'm in the gym. The cardio sessions, I had one hard cardio session this week. But if you look at the total number of like minutes, all right, we'll, we'll do it now. So there's a five-minute warm-up, five-minute cool-down, so that's 10 minutes. There's 20 minutes of steady state, so 30 minutes of steady state. There's one lot of intervals that's 15 seconds on, 45 seconds off. I did five of those, so 75 seconds of um, high-intensity work. And the 45 seconds times five is, oh, man, I'm not sure I can do that. Uh, I don't know what 45 <laughs> fives are. Uh, but, but you know, let's say it's another four minutes of easy stuff. And then you did five lots of 30-30 as well. So two and a half minutes hard and two and a half minutes easy. So if you add up all that easy, we said we had 30 minutes plus four minutes, 34 minutes, another two and a half minutes, 37 minutes versus only – 75 and two and a half is um, three. It's three minutes and 45 seconds of hard work versus 34 minutes of easy work. You know, you see how small the volume of hard work really is. And so we were talking about this 80-20 before. That's 90-10. So and yeah. it's probably not a bad allowance given my age, right? And I've done yeah. one of those this week and all the rest has been much lower. My cardio session this morning, my average heart rate was 132 beats. I, I remember one of the conversations we had was, it actually, it made me start, another one that made me start thinking, you've had me thinking a lot every time I meet you, but um, kettlebells, and like, I, I'm a kettlebell head, still am, always will be, you are you still into kettlebells, aren't you, or yeah, have you, yeah, yeah you're still into kettlebells, you're just not strong first? Well, I'm not anyone. Um, well, the, what I mean, you're just not the strong. You don't. You know, I'm going to say strong first, I mean, you're not, you're not bought into the strong first men mentality methods anymore, it's... No, so I mean, I was, a, I was a master IKC back before all that happened. Um, and, and I mean, I, look, Pavel's stuff is really good, but the, the the problems with it, and you finish your question before I get into it. No, no, I was just going to say, because I was only just talking about, 
about, I remember then one time you told me about, uh, I had done a program up and I was two-handed swings and you came on and went, waste of time, single arm swings much better. And in a way I agree, in a way I disagree. And I just want to talk about that because I want to see how, we didn't get a really good talk about it and I didn't get your opinions properly. I understand what you were talking about, the single arm swing being one-sided offset, your core is going to work harder than two-handed. But is it not also you can shift more weight with two hands on a bell rather than one hand? So therefore, every rep, and we're talking overall volume, you'll have to do lower reps, but probably get the same amount of volume in. Do you well, know if I'm swinging a, if I'm swinging a 52 kilo bell and two-handed versus a 24 one-handed? I think if you're swinging a 52 two-handed, you can probably swing more than a 24 one-handed. I'm just saying. Yeah, uh, if, if you can't, that would be a fair indication that there's something wrong, right? I mean, like, I, I would expect, you know, that number one-handed, if you're swinging a 52 two-handed, would be more like 32, 36, 32. 40. Yeah. Um, but I'm a big fan of using things the way they're designed, including our body, right? So, like, if you look at the human body, and this was the, actually the thing that got me into the, the running and stuff to begin with, there's so many things in the human body designed for locomotion. You know, we've got a ligament in the base of our head that stops your head doing this when you run. No other primate has that, right? we got an ass. No other primate has that, and its primary function is not just hip extension but anti-rotation when you run. If you look at a chimpanzee, they don't have an ass, they can't run. They do this, like, knuckling thing where they kind of go three quarters and use their hands on the ground. Um, the length of our toes, the length of the Achilles tendon, the shape of the heel, like, all these things only we've got. And we're the only primate that can run on two legs, right? In fact, we're the only animal, well, I guess there's some birds that run on two legs, right? But, yeah, but you know what I mean? Like, like use the thing the way it was designed to be used. Like, I don't take my hammer and try to use it as a screwdriver or vice versa because that's dumb. And you were talking about this with lift weights faster. If I want cardio fitness, I should just go do the thing that cardio fitness is, is designed for. So I should go run, swim, ride, whatever. If I want to get stronger, I should lift weights. Like, you never hear people saying, I'm going to get stronger, I'm going to go run, right? But for some reason, we have this weird disconnect where someone goes, I'm going to get fitter, I'm going to lift weights faster, right? Fucking dumb. Just go do some cardio if you want to get fitter, okay? Is it dumb so or is it just we're being conditioned without even, most of us wouldn't think, and a lot of trainers, you, you, people listen to trainers, you know, PTs are put up or revered by their clients, and if a client, PT says this, well, then it's gospel. Do you not think sure. maybe it's the PTs, the, the education of the personal trainers? I agree. But, you know, again, use the thing for what it's designed for. We do yeah. that in every other aspect of our life, right? So the kettlebell, how many hands is it really designed for? This, this, this is something that I did have a debate about. I like competition bells because it's single hand. It's a, it's a single hand. and So, yeah, I get you. So, so if I'm going to train with kettlebells and the thing's designed to be used with one hand, shouldn't I be using it with one hand? Do you skip bypass the two-handed swing completely and go no, straight to the single absolutely one? No, no. And so, you know, my attitude with kettlebells is that the two-handed stuff, in particular, two-hand swing, goblet squat. Those are probably the two most common two-handed exercises. Those are patterning exercises. They're what I'm teaching someone who's new to get them used to the feel of the exercise, what the shape looks like, how it should feel, and then we're actually going to move to something more difficult. Um, and if you look now and both RKC and Strong First moved to a single bell format for level one. Why? Because it actually, and so you're saying about the one-handed swing. If you look at 
FMS, right? Have you done FMS? Probably have. No, actually, I haven't. I've read it. I've, I've never just done this. I don't believe in doing the search anymore. I, can, I know enough that I can read the knowledge and not pay them 700 quid to say in that. Right. Well, so there's, there's seven tests. The bottom four relate to the top three, as in if the bottom four are good, the top three will usually be good, right? The bottom four, trunk, stability, and anti-rotation, right? So those are two core things, and shoulder and hip mobility and stability, right? So kind of important things. If you look at what the, the things are, for all of those, a one-handed swing or a one-handed clean actually proves all of the bottom four. So the test thing for hip ability is the deadlift, right? So if we say the swing is a deadlift, does that not mean that a swing qualifies as a, a good checkpoint for hip ability? The test for shoulders is actually that you can pack your shoulder, right? So we would use renegade rows, we would use push-ups, we'd use all kinds of different shoulder packing drills to prove that actually you, you had not just range but but stability there as well so the one hand swing does that right so then we've got uh straight line stability well again the deadlift is a, a test for that so the plank and the deadlift and we all know the top of the swing is a plank and the bottom of the swing is a deadlift so the top of the swing proves that i've got trunk stability and then the last one is anti-rotation and clearly a one-handed swing proves anti-rotation ability right and if you look at the clean, that absorbing the impact and not having it like displace you at all, that proves it from the other end of the spectrum. So why not being pulled when I'm, I'm being hit and have to absorb? It proves both like the the hard stiffness, so the, the um, like the feed forward tension that you get in a lot of the tension drills in Strong First and RKC, but it also proves the reflexive stability that you need to actually just be able to be adaptive to life and changing circumstances. So the one-handed swing, clean, snatch proves all of the bottom four. So if you can do a one-handed swing, heavy and crisp and well, I know that I've got those four covered to a good enough extent that we're not going to have problems with them, right? So you know, the tool's designed for one hand and, and one-handed proves an awful lot of stuff. I don't need to test you once I've seen that. I think I think a lot of persons should, re should replay that last four minutes. Because what you, because what you just explained there is something I think a lot of trainers don't understand. When I'm doing training, when I'm doing kettlebell, I'm using the tool to almost like diagnostically check on the clients and see what they're doing. And the way you just described about, you know, this or that, I don't, I don't think a lot of trainers actually can understand, you know, when you're watching a client, how important the technique is and, and for feedback information for you. Because a lot of trainer, a lot of clients will never understand what they're doing wrong. But if you observe them and you know what the technique is right, and you know what the technique is meant to be like, and you can see a disconnect and they can't get it, it's it's, it's flagging up things. And I think a lot, yeah. of, a lot of trainers ignore that. Yeah, I, you lose your posture, yeah, yeah. You I, I think every exercise is a diagnostic. I mean, the kettlebell. Hello, Andrew. Can you hear me? I, I'm definitely here. Um, the, the kettlebell. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I, 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 am I there? Now you're, break, you're breaking up. You just froze there for a few minutes there in a few, a few seconds. How about now? Okay. Yeah, you're moving now. Okay. Um, I, I think every exercise is a diagnostic in that sense. And I 100% agree with you. A lot of trainers aren't really paying enough attention to it. Um, I, I tell my partner, for instance, we joined a new gym that's across the road, so super convenient for us. Um, and watching the trainers there work, I mean, I have to stare at the ground between sets. It, it's horrible for me. 
because what they let their clients get away with is awful. But the, um, you know, I, you can look at a bench press and it's the same. It's going to tell you what's going right or wrong. You can look at someone squat and, t- and the same thing. You can look at someone run and see the same thing. I mean, there should be, my opinion, an aesthetic quality to everything we do. We all know when we watch a good athlete, like you watch Usain Bolt run, you know that's good. You know, yeah. the other end of the spectrum for running, you look at Kip Choge run, the guy who runs a two-hour marathon, for people who aren't familiar, and he looks good. If you want to look at like an ultra running sense, look at a Killian Jornet, right, and watch him run, and it's all pretty, right? It's all running. It's slightly different running, but it's all pretty. You look at Michael Jordan play basketball. You look at Tiger Woods hit a golf ball. doesn't matter what it is. We all recognize what it looks like when it's right. It has a pleasing quality to it. If your reps are clunky and ugly, you should work on making them look better. Funnily enough, if you make them look better, they'll actually end up being more productive too because they're probably actually going to be done better and the right muscles will be doing the work and will be targeting things in a better way. So, you know, absolutely there should be an aesthetic quality to it and people should be more aware of like the the quality of rep that they're doing. They just and, and this is, you know, I tell people take your headphones out when you go run, you know, no distractions, take like, like and just focus every step, make it better than the one before. So that's a lot of steps in an hour to concentrate on, but not many yeah. people are willing to do that. And tell me, what's your opinions on the the older older gentleman training with like barbell back squats, barbell straight bar deadlifts, and all the powerlifting, bodybuilding style moves? Are you a fan? Or are you, let's adapt hex bar, let's do safety bar squats, let's do dumbbell bench press? Or is it, do you just take it as individuals? Individuals, definitely. But, um, I mean, there's uh, there's no, like, hard and fast number, like, hey, at this age, you're going to want to stop squatting. But there's definitely a use-by date there, right? And so, you know, for someone like you, for instance, who's had a lot of lower body injuries, you probably don't back squat anymore, right? I don't even squat. I can't squat, yeah, can't so even squat cool. anymore. I'll tell you, that's what position I'm in. But if I go back, that would be a goblet. Yeah, right. So, so and because of my injuries, I don't back squat either. And weirdly, because like the flexibility issues that have been caused by my injuries, I actually squat with my feet like this, right? So one foot is, and that's an exaggeration, but slightly in front of the other. So I end up squatting in this kind of yeah, weird... And if you didn't know what was going on, you wouldn't notice it. I notice it because I'm so like I'm so aware of what's going on. But you can't squat with a decent load on your back and actually squat like this on every rep and expect nothing's going to happen. So I don't squat with a barbell anymore. I don't front squat. I goblet squat like you because that gives me room to move around a bit. I can set myself up better. Um, deadlifting. Not much of my friend anymore either. I can't deadlift, you know, beyond about body weight. I always end up having problems. And what I've found over the last two years, the deadlift numbers for all my clients are going like this. So the ones who are very strength focused is okay. But the ones who've got a real, like a a healthy blend of activities that they do, the deadlift numbers are definitely coming down as we're all getting older. And, you know, I'm kind of at the point now where I'm like, you know what, if you can deadlift your body weight, because really, when we're talking about deadlifting and using it as a functional exercise, what's the heaviest thing you need to pick up on a, on, on a day-to-day basis? You know, is it the mower? Uh, is it your kid? Yeah. Like, you know, what is it, like 10 kilo, 15 kilo? And, and then you need a buffer beyond that for injury prevention. But anything more than that is basically just patting yourself on the back for your effort in the gym. So if you can deadlift body – and so for me, I'm like, well, if I was hiking with my partner and she had a heart attack – 
and I had to, to drag her somewhere, you know, like she's 60 kilo. I don't need to be able to carry much more than 60 kilo. That's the heaviest thing I'm ever likely to carry. So if I can deadlift my own body weight for some reps, we're pretty good, you know. And in terms of squatting, definitely don't use much squatting anymore. I've definitely become much more flexible on guys using trap bars, double kettlebell deadlifts, like like a lot more deadlift variations than just straight bar conventional setup, a lot more frog stance deadlift, um, a lot more deadlifting out of a rack, you know, so the, the bars set a little bit higher or off plates or something like that. Um, and I used to think it was just laziness, you know, like why people would use these things. But the reality is, you know, for flexibility, like I say, you need a strength buffer, you need a flexibility buffer. So in general, they say you should be able to touch your toes, right, to deadlift. And if you maybe only get to here, you know, like you can touch the bar, but that would be like an all-out stretch for you. Maybe yeah. there's no reserve there to ward off injury. And certainly for me with my hamstring flexibility because of my injury, I don't have a big buffer there. And that's probably why deadlifting since the injury, which is like 20 years ago, has never really been my friend since. Like I can't get anywhere near the numbers I used to be able to do at 30 or so, despite the fact my upper body strength is close, my lower body strength is nowhere near the same. No surprise, I'm missing a major muscle group, right? So definitely... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say definitely, you know, like in terms of the low rep, heavy weight stuff that's hard on the back and that's squatting and deadlifting, definitely that, that's going like this, you know. Uh, I know for my mum as an extreme, when she wants to compete, it's months and months to build up, nothing else. She doesn't get to play golf. She doesn't get to do anything else. And her deadlift workout basically wipes her out for about three days afterwards because of recovery abilities at 80. And, you know, we're at the point now where I've actually said to her, I don't think that there's – like that it's making your life better to compete now because now I'm saying you're not allowed to travel beforehand because traveling involves sitting down, which leads to your back being stiffer and you get sciatic problems when that happens. So we can't do that. So you're not allowed to take trips away with my dad in the lead up. You're not allowed to go play golf because flexion and rotation and hard on the spine and I need all your spine saved up for when we deadlift. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do this. It's boring as hell, man. Like yeah. to, to go and lift and for her because she only does deadlift, it's you give up an entire day to go to a comp and do three reps. Months and months prior of nothing but deadlifting basically to do three reps on one day. It's not making your life any better. So, you know, when we look at the offset and you know, this is what I was saying about like big endurance workouts too. If you want to push it heavy on the squat or the deadlift you're paying for it somewhere else. And you're probably paying for it by not spending time with your kids, not running around the park playing soccer with them, um, not doing gardening work. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like that's got a cost. I had a guy say to me, um, he did, and so I run this thing called the 28-Day Challenge. It's basically teaching healthy lifestyle stuff to people. And the day before the guy started, he did a double bodyweight deadlift. And then he was so stiff, he couldn't play with his kid for three days. And he actually realized in that three days, like, like I've made my life worse from this. I didn't make my life better. I made my life worse. So that that kind of that gold standard that everyone holds himself to with these heavy lifts, we got to let go of that as we get older. It's a, it's a dangerous mindset. It, it's it, taken me two years to actually get to the point where I can admit to people I can't deadlift anymore because it was like an ego thing for me. You know, it was like it, for me, lifting two hundred kilo over two hundred kilo was like my way of showing. My hips may be fucked, but I've still got it. Yeah. And then 
One day I lifted 190, put my back out, and I just went, there's no point. This is, this is not helping me. And I've stopped deadlifting completely now because I just can't even get to the bar anymore. But it took a long time. It was like the letting go of that identity of who you were and accepting who you are is probably the hardest part of it someone is. hitting 40, especially someone who's been Absolutely. training for so many and, years. You know, I... Um... I get asked all the time by clients, like, what am I signing up for? What, what am I going to do? I'm like, I've got no desire to sign up for anything. It, it's like you. It took me a long time. But realize that, um, you know, to be better at my job, I have to let go of my performance and focus on their performance. So I, I'm far more concerned about what my clients do now than I am about what I do. Uh, I feel like I've competed in enough stuff. I feel like I've, I've, um, I've pushed myself. I mean, I've, I've done some horrible things to myself. Um, and not many guys in their mid forties volunteer to go for three days without sleep and get beaten in the ass by Navy SEALs, and yet I did that. Um, you know, like, like and, and honestly, like, and this is what I was talking about. Cost. I didn't feel like training for three or four months afterwards. That was August when I did that. I didn't train properly again until after Christmas. Right. So I mean, I was doing stuff, but I was burnt out, man. Like, and no desire. Because it's not just the event, it's the months and months leading up to it where you're absolutely hauling ass and really working very, very hard. It just takes a toll. And You yeah, find that with the transformations, the 12-week transformations, when they when have older guys in, they train hard for 12 weeks to get the photo shoot, and then you never see them back again. They're just, they've lost the desire to train because that intensity has just been so hard, so much, so for such a small period of time that it destroys them. It, it, look, it can, and, and but... And I've certainly seen that happen. I mean, I had a guy, um, I did a thing called the Personal Best Challenge, which is it's not really a transformation challenge because it's got performance goals attached to it. So, like, you could starve yourself and look good for photos, but this had, you had to do a certain, like, you had to get a personal best for push-ups and pull-ups. There was a 2K row attached to it. There was deadlifting attached to it. So, you know, like, you couldn't just starve yourself. You had to actually have it all working right. pretty well. And we got to week 11 of week 12. So like right near the end, guy's feeling fantastic. He's seeing his numbers go like this. He's looking good. And he, he's, he wrote a post saying, you know, I've just realized that when I get to the end, I'm continuing. I'm not going to celebrate by having ice cream and pizza and patting myself on the back and letting it all fall away. That the most important thing about this change is actually that I've changed and that means I've got to change my habits too. So I've certainly seen people go, you know, this is something I want to stay in for a long period of time. But you do get, like, I mean, anyone can concentrate for four weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it happens to be, kick their own ass, starve themselves. And, you know, if you look at the statistics of, you know, people who lose a significant amount of weight and then keep it off over 12 months, it's only about 20%. And when the numbers go out yeah. to three years, four years and beyond, it goes down to like single digits. It's, it's not very promising. And it's all because of what you said is because all they're relying on is this short-term willpower to gut it out. They weren't actually trying to change habit. And so that's probably the biggest thing I work on with people is, you know, I, I don't really care how fast you row. I don't really care how much you lift. What I really care about is that you're around for another 40 years. And the best way we can accomplish that is by, you know, like we're going to sleep this way, we're going to eat this way, we're going to make sure we've got some daily activity and we can do some strength and cardio training. And when all this becomes habitual, it's actually going to be pretty easy. And so what I expect is that, you know, depending on the person, this is going to take 6, 12, 24, whatever months to actually get them to, to make it all habit. 
and then they're going to find me and I'm going to go off and I'm going to do it with someone else because they actually won't need me. They'll be able to do all this on their own afterwards because it's just happened at that point. Yeah. Well, we'll finish off with one question. I want to, that was a really good talk, and I want to finish off with one last question. Um, controversial, usually, because a lot of, especially over in this country, um, it's basically the steroids and testosterone replacement therapy. What over here, it's sort of looked upon as like, you know, drug use, steroids, bodybuilder type thing, and shunned upon. And I don't think the science has really crossed over to the mainstream where people can understand the benefits, especially for people our guys our age. Of testosterone replacement therapy, what's it like in Australia over with you? Um, it, it's probably close to the same. Uh, I know in Melbourne there are only two doctors that will do that, so like, like we'll call it anti-aging, right? And, or like men's health. <laughs> There's two doctors in Melbourne. Wait, wait. Yeah, there, there might be. I, I've heard of a third one, but I'm pretty sure he only works with gay guys, and he started off down that path using testosterone, whatever, to boost the immune system of guys who, who become uh, HIV mm-hmm. plus. So, so, you know, I'm not sure actually that he'll see people outside of the gay community. So as far as I know, there's only two doctors in Melbourne. Um, so firstly, my feelings on, on drugs in sport is that they're prevalent, right? They're everywhere. And I think it's naive to assume that drugs equal cheating. I'm pretty sure gold medals equal drugs, right? Because that's the lesson I see. <laughs> And so, so, so to say that drugs equal cheating, that's not accurate, right? Because the best athletes in the world take drugs, right? Full stop. Um, however, if you're competing and the rules of the sport say you shouldn't take X, Y, Z, well, then you shouldn't take X, Y, Z, right? So that, that's what cheating is, right? When you're outside the rules of the sport. If you're a 40-year-old guy and you're not competing in anything, take whatever the fuck you want. Um, and I don't mean like, like become like the rock and as impressive as he looks – that dude is a walking heart attack, right? Like the amount of stuff he must be taking is is sky high, right? So, you know, I don't advise that. I certainly think you should go off and see a doctor. So the start would just be find a doctor, and that could be difficult enough. Um, you know, like we were talking right at the start about this. Uh, early on, so I have a doctor I go to who looks after all my blood levels. Um, uh, I get tested every six months. I know everything's perfect, right? And and we do whatever's required to keep things in the normal range. Um, I don't seek to keep things in the high normal range. I don't try to go beyond the normal range. I'm just trying to stay in the normal range. A large majority of what we do is like magnesium, fish oil, that kind of stuff. Um, weirdly gave me this like, uh, it's like a spray that you put under your tongue first thing in the morning uh, and you hold there for like 30 to 60 seconds and it's for your liver. So, like, by all means, let's, you know, like, like because uh, I'm sure you're, like I am, you probably take some anti-inflammatories on a new daily basis. Uh, th- th- they can be a little bit hard on your body. And so this is just to help that. Um, but early on, the first doctor I went to see, he basically got kicked out of the country by our medical association. So there was, there was some other stuff. There was a guy working out of his office who was stealing his prescription pads and using them to write prescriptions for an AFL team, for an Aussie rules team, right? So, and that whole team got busted, right? So this is the biggest sports scandal in Australia was that this one team got busted. The entire team basically tested positive, right? Um, guys lost their jobs. Uh, you know, anyway, massive news in Australia. And this guy was working out of the doctor's office. And so as part of, he was already unpopular with the, the conservative medical mainstream. 
And then when this happened, they came out with the pitchforks and the, the, the you know, the torches and stuff. And he was American. He went, well, bugger all this. I'm going back to America. I don't have to put up with any of this. And he's actually left the country. He's gone back to California where he can just do, I assume, uh, the same as he was doing here, but with less oversight. My current doctors, I mean, things like, like and the, the, the regulations are consistently getting tighter and tighter, right? So when I started, it was a blood test every 12 months. Now it's a blood test every six months. Um, one of the, the things I got would come in a 10 mil vial. It now comes in two five mil vials because they can't sell it in a 10 mil vial anymore because they changed the rules about, you know, like, I don't know, like the potency or whatever, but the rules have changed, right? So I can see as a consumer how much stricter it is getting. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because the other doctor, so not the one I go to, but the other one in Melbourne is basically the one all the powerlifters and bodybuilders go to who want to take drugs to compete but don't want to run the risk of getting busted, right? But I know guys who are taking not just hormone replacement but hormone enhancement, right? Like, I mean, they're, they're on a cycle that's being provided by a doctor. So I know that that's beyond what the, the law says. So there are still some people operating like cowboys. That definitely should be tightened up. I mean, this is, you know, once you start playing with hormones, you see it can influence a lot of things very quickly down to little things. So uh, DHEA is a really popular supplement for guys past 35. So levels of DHEA start dropping. DHEA is, if you're in the US, you can buy it over the counter. You can go to GNC or any supplement store, you can buy it over the counter. Probably for you, it's like us, that it would be a prescription only item, right? The amount I can get prescribed in Australia is actually the amount you can buy over the counter in Australia. So I have a, in fact, I have two bottles of DHEA in my cupboard right now that I don't touch because when I first started taking it, and this is a, a sign of how crazy hormone stuff can be, right? DHEA is called a precursor, right? It goes before testosterone, but it also goes before estrogen. It can go either way, depending on you, right? So on paper, they go, oh, this will help you make testosterone. Yeah, it can also help you make estrogen too. They can give it to women going through IVF to help them make more estrogen. So it's possible that you could go either way. I started taking DHEA and I'm sharing, I'm like, hang on, there's, there's a lump in my chest, right? I'm in the age group where you go, fuck, that could be bad, right? So, and I've never had a problem with like gyno or anything like that growing up. I've always been relatively lean. That's not my normal genetics to have any kind of problems with fat deposits in my chest. So straight away in my head, I'm like, fuck, I've got breast cancer. Like how weird is that? I've got, I've got basically a female cancer, like because that's the stigma for breast cancer. It's largely women that get it. I better go get this tested. Luckily, all it was was gyno. It was just a fat buildup. Yeah. The only thing that had changed was DHEA, right? So I have a prescription for it. I don't touch it. It just sits in my cupboard, you know, useless. I'm never going to use it for anything because I'm fucking scared to death of touching it because I don't want to have to go and have more of it removed. But we changed one little thing. And again, this is an amount you can buy over the counter without a prescription in the US. You are going to impact something else. So it shows how important having someone look at it is. So having the right doctor, having like, like not just a doctor who does this, but a doctor who's experienced and trusted with it, who's somehow able to operate within the, the normal conservative mainstream is very difficult to find in my country. And I assume it's, it's difficult in yours. Um, if, if where you are is like where I am, I would imagine you've got maybe one to three doctors where you are who, who actually do this thing. But it's certainly worth I actually worth don't know any. I know one. I know oh. there's one guy in Dublin, but I don't know any up here. 
Yeah, right. So yes. it just shows. Well, hold on. I mean, what's the population? It's five million, right? Uh, and north, I'm from the north, so it's one million. Or by one, okay, so one million. Population of Melbourne is five million. So, you know, in perspective, yeah, I would think you probably are going to have to go somewhere else to, to find. Yeah. It's a thing. Well, listen, Andrew, that was a great talk. I'll leave it there. It's been just over an hour. Uh, really appreciate it. Really appreciate your time, and I love catching up. And again, you've you've started me off on a new thing now. I'm going to have to look up that math number and start working out all those new numbers to try to figure out the cardio. Uh, I have somewhere. I've actually written it somewhere. I, I'll find it and send it to you. I, I've actually got that. Oh, it, it, might be a blog or it might be a blog. It might be in the last thing I wrote. I'll, I'll have a look. I've actually written it somewhere. Well, if you, if you get it, you can fire it over to me. But, Andrew, thank you very much. Before you go, well, how can people get in contact with you? Uh, the easiest way is my Facebook page. It's just Andrew Reed. Uh, there's a public figure page. Uh, my website is readpt, R-E-A-D-P-T dot com. And I've also got uh, connected to my Facebook page a free men's fitness group. Well, it's not men's anymore. It's just actually it's called Andrew Reed's Strength and Conditioning for the Aging Athlete. And I think it's just going to get called Aging Athlete pretty soon. But it's basically for guys who want to stay in shape, stay active, but have smart goals. Like I don't really want 60-year-old guys telling me they want to fight MMA. But I'm happy to, to work with 60-year-old guys who say, hey, I used to fight MMA, and now I want to go for a hike with my son. What would you suggest? Like, that, to me, is a really good goal. It's a good goal. Yeah. I'd also recommend anyone in the running get your book. I find it very interesting. Uh, it definitely opened my mind to how I should train fighters for their baseline cardio. Very good. But, Andrew, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it, and I'll uh, speak to you soon, buddy. All right. Thank you.